and welcome. Um, our services at 10 a.m. Well, they're not always like this. We don't always do dancing, but I tell you what, that was that's a highlight for the year, I reckon, for me. I, I finally got the bit at the end, the Acts 1 verse 8, but thankfully um, my, wife's, my wife's away this weekend. She's with some old friends down the coast, and she would have been very embarrassed at my attempt at dancing. Anyway, there you go. Stick to your strengths. Um, we're going we're gonna to open our Bibles to Acts, or keep your Bibles open, actually. If you don't have... Um, actually, what we might do, we might have a little pause. Why don't we... Uh, we let's, let's stand up, everyone, please. That'd be great. And have a bit of a stretch. And if you don't have a Bible, while everyone else is stretching, you can go out to the foyer and grab one and come back again. I'm going to get a drink of water while we do that. So have a stretch. Say hello to the person next to you, that sort of thing. Okay, I think we're pretty good. If, um, if someone who has a, a church Bible would like to yell out the page number of Acts 21 verse 1, that'd be great. Anyone got a church Bible doing that? No, nope, everyone's got phones and... Liam, it might be up to you there. You can do it. 11.03, thank you very much. 11.03, excellent. All right. Let me, uh, let me pray as we open, uh, open God's Word and think about... God's work in the world and um, his sovereign control over all things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are God who speaks to us. We thank you that um, you are a God who's in control and who is building his church. And so we pray you do that now as we hear from you, as we, um, as we put your words into practice. Uh, we thank you for church today. In Jesus' name, amen. One of my, uh, <laughs> one of my all-time favourite movies, and I reckon all-time quotable movies is The Princess Bride. Great movie. If you haven't seen it, you've got to see it. Marriage. Marriage is what brings us all together. <laughs> That's my best impersonation I can get. That's one quote. The other one is, called, is um, uh, inconceivable. And then what did you say? I don't think you know what that word means. If you haven't seen the movie, you really should see the movie. Um, that's your homework this week. Go and, go and watch The Princess Bride. Um, it is great. I, I watched it again and again and again. Now, my favourite character in The Princess Bride uh, is Inigo Montoya. Remember Inigo Montoya? He's, uh, he's played by Mandy Patinkin, a very young Mandy Patinkin in uh, The Princess Bride. Now, as the story goes, Inigo seeks to revenge the death of his father at the hand of a six-fingered swordsman. He repeats time and time again in the movie when he believes that he's confronted his uh, father's killer. He repeats this line. He says, Hello, <laughs> my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Again and again, he says that line throughout the movie, thinking that he's come across uh, his father's killer who he seeks to avenge. The question throughout the movie, now that's, that's actually not the main story of the movie. The main story of the movie, the main plot is, is, uh, is different. Um, by, uh, you, can, you, can, you can watch it later on. But 
Inigo, we, as we follow this story with Inigo Montoya, we're asked the question, well, will he succeed? The, the, and the tension builds throughout the movie as well. It gets bigger and bigger. Will he, will he find his father's killer? And, and at the end, sorry, spoiler alert, anyway, if you haven't watched it like in the last 30 years, you haven't watched it now, you, really, you should have watched it. At the end, when all seems lost, when his father's murderer stabs him during this epic sword fight, but Anigo comes back, he rises up, gets back, and he says, hello, my name is Inigo Motoya, you killed my father, prepare to die. And he finally triumphs. It's a magnificent scene, though not without pain, suffering and great perseverance, he completes the mission. I perhaps we better watch that scene, shouldn't we? I think we should watch the scene. Let, let's watch the scene. <laughs> Heavens, are you still trying to win? You've got an overdeveloped sense of vengeance. It's going to get you into trouble someday. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Stop saying that! I hope you enjoyed my editing there, just some keeping it family friendly. Um, <laughs> yes, that's what this does. Now, you see, the, the, where we're at now in Acts, the, the plot of Acts, as the story goes, as the history goes, we find Paul coming into Jerusalem, but he faces strong opposition. And a bit like Inigo Montoya in The Princess Bride, the, the, the tension of the story at this point builds and builds. And the question is raised will he succeed? Will his mission be accomplished? Will he survive Jerusalem and finally make it to Rome, make it to, as we read from Acts 1 verse 8, sorry, Acts 1, no. Um, <laughs> will, will he finally succeed, make it to Jerusalem, to the ends of the earth? That's the question. And that's the question actually that dominates the chapters we're looking at today. What we're looking at is chapter 21 verse 1 to 23 verse 24. So it's a bit of a, bit of a chunk. What we see as this question unravels and is answered, really, 
on four separate occasions, Paul is rescued from a hopeless situation by our most unlikely of rescuers. God is directing his mission through Paul. He's sustaining his missionary, missionary and his purposes. And his purposes will be fulfilled. God himself is the guarantee that his word will be fulfilled and that his church will be built and that his promises will be kept. God is the guarantee, as we'll see, and, and that Paul's mission will be a success. So, if you can see on your outline, if you want to grab your outline as you received, you received when you came in the door, uh, there's a, a double-sided, there's a fair bit there, but don't be too daunted by that. We're going to go through things pretty fast. But there are seven distinct scenes in uh, these sections of Acts, these chapters, all developing this theme of, of danger and rescue in Paul's journey. And so what we're going to do, we're going to do a bit of a flyover, I suppose, a bit of a flyover those chapters and then land on a few points. So I'm going to ask you to flip around your Bible a little bit and come with me to some verses. If you can't keep up, that's okay. Just listen, listen along and you'll see. But if you can, you can read the verses along with us. So seven scenes. Here's scene number one, Paul's trip to Jerusalem. Now you can see it on a little map here. Um, hope that makes sense. There's Jerusalem right down the bottom there. And then that's the way he's been heading. Last week we looked at Paul in Miletus when he spoke to the, the church leaders in Ephesus. And now he's headed down this way here, Rhodes, Patera, and all the way down to Tyre, and finally to Jerusalem. So you get the idea, that's his third missionary journey. Paul has been quite literally bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. and we, In fact, we touched on this last week, even though he's been warned by the Spirit of what awaits. So if you look in your Bibles, chapter 20, verse 22, which we looked at last week, uh, and now compelled by the Spirit, Paul says, I'm going to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen there. In fact, the next verse tells us a bit more about what will happen. It won't be good. Even Paul's friends warn him not to go. Have a look at 21 verse 4. We, ought, we sought out, this is uh, Luke writing here, and Luke's with Paul at this point. We sought out the disciples there in Jerusalem and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they, so not in Jerusalem, this is up in, um, in Tyre. Uh, they, through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. A prophet called Agabus turns up and other travellers also warn him not to go. But he does go, insisting, have a look at 21 verse 13, insisting that even though he may be um, bound for the sake of Jesus and may die, uh, it's all for the name of the Lord Jesus. These sort of words, the, in words I suppose which, which ought to remind us of Jesus' determination to trust God in the Garden of Gethsemane, Luke actually records this in Luke 21 verse 14. When, uh, it's, quite, it's quite a scene, when he would not be dissuaded. So all his friends are going and Agabus is there as well, don't do it, don't do it. You're going you're gonna to be persecuted for the sake of the gospel. When all of them were trying to, be, to dissuade him, they said, we gave up. Because <laughs> Paul was so determined, the Lord's will be done. And just as it was for the Lord Jesus, Jerusalem will once more show itself to be a centre of opposition for the gospel. That's scene one, on the way to Jerusalem. Scene two is Paul's arrival and the meeting with James. So Paul receives quite a nice, a warm welcome in Jerusalem when he arrives. He meets with James and some of the other elders and here's that, uh, this is 21 verse 20, thousands of Jews have believed and all of them are zealous for the Lord. That's pretty encouraging, isn't it? Thousands have believed. But 
a, a rumour, a false rumour, had reached Jerusalem that Paul is encouraging Jewish leaders, uh, Jewish believers, I should say, to disregard the law. A rumour floating around that Paul's discouraging these new believers to just throw out the law uh, completely. Although, you know what, as we read through Galatians and Romans, we start to wonder, maybe there might have been a bit of truth to that rumour. Anyway, in any case, James, one of the elders in Jerusalem, reminds Paul of the Jerusalem agreement from back in chapter 15. Now, that's what, we, that's what Andrew Leslie preached from Moore College a couple of weeks ago about that. You can read about that in chapter 15. That was mostly to do with um, Gentiles. This is mostly to do with Jews. But what James does, James anticipates the trouble that this rumour might cause in Jerusalem with the Jews. And so he urges Paul to join in this particular purification rite, a Jewish purification rite, with four other men. So that everyone will know there's no truth to the rumour and Paul will be seen as someone who respects the law. It's a bit of an insight into Paul's ministry strategy. I don't think it was a compromise. No, not a compromise. I think what we'll see in a moment, what we'll see, it didn't do him any good anyway. <laughs> Paul gets attacked and beaten and, and, and thrown into prison. Didn't do any good. But it's Paul living by this principle that we read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul writes, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law. You see, Paul would, Paul would do anything really he can to win those for Christ. Okay, scene three. The Jerusalem riot and Paul's first rescue. So Jews from the province of Asia, we read, probably from Ephesus, um, remember on your map, it's a bit further up to the northwest. They had followed Paul from Ephesus down into Jerusalem. And they started inciting the crowd with the same old, same old accusation um, of Paul. This guy, Paul, he's speaking against the temple. Now, nothing stirred up a Jewish crowd like accusations of speaking against the temple. You want to start a riot? Accuse someone of speaking against the temple. That's what they did. So here we have... The Jews are God's ancient chosen people trying to kill God's apostle. But Paul, well, he's rescued by a commander of the Roman army. Now, the Roman army were pretty smart to have their barracks close by to the temple, a common source of grief and unrest. That's where these things happen. But in the end, um, due to the providence of God, God's sovereign care over all things, the soldiers were close by a number of times and were able to get Paul, quick, get Paul out quickly and rescue him, in fact, four times. Uh, many years ago, Michelle and I, um, we lived up the coast at a place called Old Bar. This is, um, well, I describe it as double income, no kids living on the beach. It's pretty good. Um, <laughs> and uh, so we lived up there and uh, it's a great rescue story was told. In fact, Michelle wrote about it in the paper, so we know it pretty well. It came about when this local police sergeant, who was also part of the, um, uh, the Surf Lifesaving Club, he was walking along the beach and spotted this, well, it's an unfamiliar sight, paddling out in the water, uh, in the waves. And at first he thought it might, he thought it might have been a shark or something like that. It might have been a, some sort of strange fish because it seemed to be having a bit of trouble. Uh, then he thought, well, maybe it's a dog. It was a dog having a bit because it was going up, in and out of the water. So, well, he swam out. Had a look at it. 
But it wasn't a dog. It was, in fact, a wallaby. A wallaby. And uh, being the type of man he was, well, we realised that wallabies don't belong out there. <laughs> so we grabbed the wallaby, put an arm around the neck and swam it in. Now we went, rescued the wallaby, back to safety. Now, Old Bar's renowned uh, for its nasty shore breaks. And as luck would have it, this massive wave came through just in time to clean up the sergeant and his little companion and dump them unceremoniously on the shore. Well, instead of running back to the land where the wallaby belonged, no, 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 the wallaby actually turned around and went straight out to the sea again. Out it went. But our police sergeant is uh, not one to give up and so a pursuit ensued. He caught up with his furry friend and paddled in again, right? In fact, as the story goes, truth is, that happened twice more. Two more times. The whole thing repeated. Out it swam. Dump, out it swam. And the sergeant continued to rescue this little wallaby. On the final time, the young marsupial seemed to get the picture and ran away into the safety of the bushes. See, of course, the truth is, what's going on here, without God's provision, God's sovereign care over all things, the provision of this police sergeant, well, the young wallaby would not have survived. It would have eventually been drowned and, and or taken by a shark even. Without the Lord's provision, his sovereign directing care of all things, without the Lord's provision of this commander, Paul's life would have indeed been lost in Jerusalem. And that's what Luke tells us in Acts. Well, heading back to our text again, in the first rescue, so in Acts 21 verse 38, Paul is actually mistaken for an Egyptian terrorist. I guess only their mothers could tell them apart. Anyway, um, reality was quite different. Egyptians, were the, Egyptians of the first century were seen as uneducated and unsophisticated. Paul was well-educated, he was Greek-speaking, he was Hellenistic, which means he was, um, uh, from, he was a Roman citizen a, from a Jewish background, and so was given the right to stand up and speak at the barracks and address the crowd. So, scene four, Paul's address to the crowd. It's uh, chapter 22, verses 1 to 21. Now, this is the, the, the part that was read to us just a moment ago by Matt. The scene, um, well, we want to notice a few things as we think through this scene. Notice how Paul stresses his Jewishness. Did you pick up on that as we read through? He speaks in Aramaic, which is a Jewish language, to brothers and fathers. He reminds his hearers that though he was born in Tarsus, he was educated in Jerusalem and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors uh, uh, by Gamaliel, a famous Jewish teacher of the time. He openly declares that he's been a persecutor of Christians. He stresses the devout Jewishness of Ananias. Ananias was the guy who rescued Paul. Well, he, he, he helped Paul after his conversion when he went blind. And he emphasises that he'd been called by the God of our fathers in verse 14, chapter 22, and that what happened to him was a theophany. A theophany is God appearing, uh, in which he has seen the righteous one. The righteous one is code for the Christ or Messiah, God's anointed king. Now, up until this point, in fact, up until verse 21, the crowd is with Paul. They're listening along. They're okay with it. But then Paul tells the crowd of his task of going to the Gentiles with this message of the gospel. And in true form, a riot ensues. <laughs> Paul's very much alone, isn't he? Have you noticed that? He's, 
Where are all the thousands of Jews who became believers? Where they're all gone? Where's James? Where's the other elders in the other Jerusalem leaders? They're nowhere to be seen. In fact, later on, uh, when uh, at his first defence in Rome, we'll get to that in a couple of weeks actually, Paul was to state publicly that he felt abandoned. Paul writes um, uh, in 2 Timothy, to the young Timothy, a pastor at Ephesus, he writes this, At my first defence, no one came to my support. This is what Max read to us before. But everyone deserted me, may not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through the message, through me, the message, the word, might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. We get a bit of an understanding, don't we, of Paul's determination. Okay, scene five. Well, uh, another riot. <laughs> another riot, Jerusalem riot and Paul's second rescue. So again, the crunch comes when Paul speaks of his calling to the nations. That was verse 21. Uh, and God's purposes should include the Gentiles. They were with him for a while and then, what? The Gentiles? No way. A riot breaks out and once more, like our police sergeant and the wallaby, the commander steps in and rescues Paul. But in doing so, he makes, well, he makes a pretty serious error and, and he just, just gets away with it. Let's find out what happens. I'm going to read from verse 21 and we'll, we'll, we'll read a few more verses. So then the Lord said to me, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The crowd listened to Paul up until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and, finding and fleeing dust into the air, the commander ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. He directed that he would be, he'd be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were, were shouting at him like this. So pause for a moment there. You know, there's better ways, aren't there, to get the truth out of someone and ask them why he's speaking that way. But anyway, the commander decided that flogging was the best way to get the truth out of someone. Anyway, verse 25. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't been found guilty? And the centurion goes, oh, gee, uh-oh. When the centurion heard this, he, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do? He asked him. This man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, Paul said. Then the commander said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship, but I was born a citizen. <laughs> In other words, he trumps him. Verse 29, those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realised that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. You know what's interesting here too is the contrast again between the Jews and the Romans. You notice that? The Jews' treatment of Paul is pretty awful. Uh, the Romans are seen in much more positive light. In the attempt to kill him, Paul has been beaten severely. I, I wonder too, what he must have looked quite a sight standing and speaking on the steps of the barracks beaten and bloodied and there he is preaching away well he's rescued from the crowd which is getting more and more worked up they, they're throwing their cloaks and chucking dirt and dust everywhere as he's stretched out to be flogged again we wonder will he survive will God's plans for his church be thwarted by all this anger like Enigo Motoya in the Princess Bride the tension grows and he makes his way well after that he gets rescued he makes his way to the Sanhedrin that's the Jewish court Will Paul's mission succeed? What's God doing? Another question we could ask. 
Right, scene six. So Paul's addressed to the Sanhedrin, that's where he goes next, and his third rescue. It's in verses 30 to, uh, 22, 30 to 23, 11. So like Jesus before him, Paul is, is, is struck in the face. We'll read about it in a moment, the Sanhedrin. It's not even very clear why he's struck in the face as well. Again, Luke, the writer here, wants, to, wants us to compare Paul's treatment by the Romans, which has not been very fair, uh, sorry, treatment, treatment by the Romans, which has been fair, to the Jews, which has not been fair. They have even violated their own law by treating Paul the way they have. So come with me to chapter 23, verse 1. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Again, really not sure why. There's no clear reason. They just wanted to hit him. Who knows? Then Paul said, God will strike you. Listen to this. You whitewashed wall. Wow. <laughs> what a thing to say. You know that means, of course, you hypocrites. You're just painting white over your, your deceit, your sin, uh, you're whitewashing yourself. And then he says, you sit, here, you sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. You see, they're hypocrites, Paul says. Well, in verses 6 to 7, Luke records that Paul's claim is that he's being opposed because he maintains the Pharisees' belief about the resurrection. Of course, Jesus knows about the true resurrection in Jesus. Uh, Paul knows about the true resurrection in Jesus. Again, Anyway, once again, what happens? Chaos ensues, another riot, people are going nuts. And Paul is rescued by our good friend, the commander. There he is again. Although this time Paul's life is very much in danger. Look at verse 10, chapter 23. The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. That is pretty violent, isn't it? He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. I don't know if you can picture that sort of scene. But pretty crazy. The scene finishes, though, in verse 11. Have a look at verse 11. And, and it's this wonderful encouragement to Paul about God's purposes and a reassurance from God that no matter how dark things look, Paul will testify, he will preach the word of God in Rome. Verse 23, The following night the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome, Jesus said. We'll come back to that verse in a minute or so. Final, final scene. The plot to kill Paul and uh, his fourth rescue. Verses 12 to 24. Have a look at verse 12 though. sort of find this a little bit funny. I don't know if you do. Uh, the next morning some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. You wonder how long they were waiting for. <laughs> it's day 15. You know, getting a bit hungry now. Day 20, oh gee, day 30, drop dead. Um, well, if they kept the oath at all, I don't know if they did. Anyway, a trap is set for Paul. We can read about it later, if you want, later on if you want. Paul's trusty nephew turns up and tells him about it, this trap, and passes the information on to, you guessed it, the Roman commander. He's still there, who is able to rescue Paul for the fourth time. It's like some scene out of a Hollywood movie. You'll have to read it later on. But the commander organises a huge detachment of soldiers to take Paul by night to Governor Felix at Caesarea, so a little bit north up the coast. Uh, the commander was not going to underestimate the, the Jews' 
uh, or that their strength and determination to get Paul, to kill Paul. And so uh, he gets this enormous army and they go at night and it's like some theme out of Mission Impossible. I don't know. That's what it is. In the end, here's the irony of all. The irony is that the Roman pagans become deliverers of God's apostle from the hands of God's ancient people. Well, before we wrap things up, let's just notice something else. That God answers prayer, as we've seen in surprising ways in this passage. Romans 15 verse 31, I'll have it up on the screen in a moment. Paul is actually writing from Corinth to the church at Rome on his third missionary journey. So a little while back from where we are now and what's happening. Uh, This is what he writes. He writes, I urge you, so he's writing to the church in Rome, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to join me in the struggle by praying to God for me. And what sort of prayer does he ask? He asks, pray, remember he's in Corinth, he hasn't got to Jerusalem yet, he's heading to Jerusalem. Pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea. Judea is Jerusalem, practically. You see what he's praying for? And you see what we've seen? We've seen God answer that prayer. God pray, uh, Paul prays for rescue, and rescue is delivered four times by the most unlikely of person going around, this Roman commander. We don't know what uh, Paul thought his rescue might look like, uh, how it would happen, but it does happen. God answers their prayers and Paul is rescued four times by a representative of the Roman government. Okay, let's tie a few things together as we close. The God of the word is in control. Paul has testified that word in Jerusalem and now he must also testify in Rome. Remember Jesus' encouraging words in verse 11. Neither, Paul is neither fearful or uncertain. He trusts in God's sovereign purpose to see his promise, his word fulfilled. Have a look at that verse 11 again. Take courage, Jesus says. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify me, uh, also testify in Rome. Friends, I want to say it's the same today. It is God who directs his mission. It is God who grows his church by his word. It's God who sees his purposes fulfilled, who who keeps his promises to his church. Acts tells us it is God who is hands-on, not hands-off when it comes to his mission. He's not disinterested. God's not uninvolved in outreach. When you're talking to your friends about Jesus, when you're uh, inviting them to church or a event or got on or whatever it might be, it is God who is involved in his mission. Not being hands-off, hands-on. It's God who's involved in making disciple-making disciples, as we often talk about. And so what we ought to do, well, we ought to trust God. In fact, there's a few questions we could ask. Let me read this to you. Does my trust in God, the sovereign involved director of all things, show itself in prayerful dependence? Does it? Uh, Do I actively cultivate childlike dependence on him, knowing that God is sovereign and God is building his church, and that God is, is uh, uh, working amongst us, that he's hands-on. Do I expect the unexpected in the way God will answer my prayer? I doubt Paul expected the Roman commander to, answer, to be the one who answers, uh, the one that God uses to answer his prayer. And no matter how bleak things seem, and gee, they looked pretty bleak in this story, didn't they? 
How many riots do we have? Limbs torn off or the threat of it. No matter how bleak things seem, am I trusting God to fulfill his purposes? They're good questions, I reckon. How about we pray? Father, we, we thank you for your word to us today. Uh, Lord, it, it's pretty overwhelming, this story of Paul at this stage in his, this missionary journey and the opposition that he faced and the violence and uh, the threats. But what's also overwhelming is that you're, you're a God who keeps your promises, you fulfil your word, and we know, Lord, that, that Paul testified in Rome, went on to Spain as well, and Lord, we thank you that you're a God who keeps your promises. You're sovereign over all things. And by the Lord Jesus, you rescue us. Uh, Father, we, um, we thank you for today. We pray for uh, your church here. We pray that as a church that we would trust you in prayerful dependence and that you would continue to, to be making disciple, making disciples of, um, of this community, this world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.